Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll discuss real pirates in Florida versus their fictional counterparts. They did have uh, the Jolly Roger, and uh, they did have the pirate flags, and those were used to intimidate. And what they really wanted to do was to get you to give up and scare you into giving up. We'll hear how Vero Beach was almost named Zero Beach, and we'll talk with the survivors of the 1935 Labor Day hurricane. We knew that there was a hurricane out there because my dad, read the barometer like he read his Bible. That was every day. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Pirates have been romanticized in popular culture for more than a century, from the Robert Louis Stevenson book Treasure Island, the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta Pirates of Penzance, and the fairy tale Peter Pan, to dozens of films, most recently the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Zach Zacharias is Senior Curator of Education and Curator of History at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach. He says that most of what we think we know about pirates from these popular sources and others is false. Take the idea of walking the plank, for example. Not true at all. And what people know in our society is basically ba partly true, and then a lot of it's been fabricated by Hollywood and books and plays. And walking the plank is something that has never been documented in the historical record. And the fact that they would stop the ship throw out a ceremonial piece of plank and have a ceremony and have somebody jump off the ship is not really going to happen. They, if they want to get rid of it, they just threw you off the ship. Almost every pirate story features a map with an X marking the spot where buried treasure is located. Zach Zacharias says no way. X marks the spot uh, definitely is one of those myths. They, uh, there's no treasure map that's ever really been found. And... Uh, Believe it or not, they wouldn't bury their money because it's not useful for them to bury the money. They wanted to spend their money. They spent a lot of their money when they went to the port, and burying it doesn't do you any good. When it, and you probably would never even find it again on a small island. So that makes the idea of buried treasure also a myth. As if that wasn't enough, Zacharias says that the stereotypical pirate with a peg leg, hook hand, and eye patch is also not likely. Uh, not likely at all. As a matter of fact, if you, ha if you had a peg leg and you could survive that type of a wound back in 1688, 
there's no way you'd be able to climb the rigging. You wouldn't be able to keep your balance on a ship. So what they would probably do is put you on a port town, give you a little bit of extra share, and say bye-bye to you. That's not to say that maybe somewhere on a ship there was somebody that was missing an arm or had an eye poked out and survived that. But for the most part, uh, that was pretty much, that was not the norm at all. This is not really true. Many fictional pirates have talking birds on their shoulders. What about that? Talking birds are very entertaining, and I can see why Hollywood would love that. But uh, they did have birds. Some pirates would capture exotic birds, but they sold them at at next port town or markets, and they didn't train them to sit on their shoulder and say goofy things. (laughs) So no walking the plank, no buried treasure or maps with an X marking the spot, probably no peg legs, hook hands, or eye patches. Certainly all that singing and drinking must be real. Again, you definitely see that in the pirate movies and the stories where everybody's singing and happy uh, and swinging from ropes and drinking. Uh, but it was actually, they had to sail the ship, so they couldn't be drunk or drinking all the time. And it was boring. They could go weeks and weeks without even seeing a ship. And so it could be a very boring life. So they didn't do that. Before you get totally disillusioned over our popular ideas about pirates, Zach Zacharias says they did have scary flags with skulls and crossbones. They did have uh, the Jolly Roger, and uh, they did have the pirate flags, and those were used to intimidate. And what they really wanted to do was to get you to give up and scare you into giving up because the pirates, again, another myth that they wanted to fight all the time, not true. They didn't want to fight because one slight cut from a cutlass sword could get infected and you could die out at sea and they didn't have any box or any type of, of medicine for that. So they, they could give you to give up the, and take your stuff. Uh, that's what they wanted. They didn't want to fight unless they had to. But if they did fight, it was hand-to-hand. Pirates have raided Florida's coast since the first Europeans settled here in 1565. To discuss pirates in Florida, we must use the correct terminology. For example, some pirates had permission to raid and pillage Florida towns. They were privateers. Basically, a privateer is somebody that's hired by a government, like the English government, and they're given uh, a letter of marquee or a writ saying that they have authorization by the government to attack enemy shipping, uh, and that's usually in time of war. Usually the Spanish and the English were doing that. But the Spanish were fair game for everybody because they were bringing a lot of wealth out of the New World, out of Veracruz and other parts of of the New World. And they were becoming very wealthy. So they were fair game for everybody from the Dutch to the French to the English. And they were being attacked. So it didn't matter if you had a a letter of marquee or document that said you were an authorized pirate. Uh, They saw everybody as pirates. So privateers were basically legally sanctioned pirates, but their situation could quickly change depending on politics. Exactly. You could get caught because information traveled very slow back then. And uh, Captain Kidd was one of those pirates that got stuck where the political winds changed and he was no longer a privateer. He was a pirate. The football team in Tampa Bay is the Buccaneers, and they have as their symbol a pirate with a feather in his cap and a dagger in his mouth. Zach Zacharias says the Buccaneers were a specific group of pirates. Buccaneers refers to a group of pirates that evolved around Tortuga and Hispaniola and uh, the native... uh, Americans that lived on the on the Hispaniola, they used to take these strips of meat and put them on a rack and dry it out and smoke it. It's basically like beef jerky. And so these Frenchmen who were on the island of Hispaniola would copy this and they would take it out to passing ships and they would sell this jerky to the passing ships. Well, eventually they just started raiding the ships and taking the ships and stealing things and they became known as buccaneers. And that's where the, the term buccaneer comes from the, the uh, 
the native word bucan or bucaning. It can be argued that the discovery of French pirates in Florida helped lead to the establishment of the first Spanish settlement at St. Augustine in 1565. It's really interesting, and I, I never really see a lot written about this, but it, when we had the French Huguenots come in Jacksonville in 1565 and trying to make a, a, a settlement, not a colony, they were here for good, uh, and they were escaping religious uh, persecution, they went six miles up the St. John's and they put their settlement up on a bluff. Well, many of them had gotten gold fever and were scouring the countryside for gold instead of preparing themselves, preparing their settlement, and they fell into starvation. And some of the soldiers uh, who were with the, the French settlement were disillusioned, stole some of the ships, went turned to piracy, were caught by Spanish squadron, and that alerted the Spanish that the French were in La Florida or in the, had been on their, is on their, on their land. Zach Zacharias says that people are often surprised to discover that pirates in Florida and elsewhere operated under a democratic system. Really amazing. Before there was democracy in North America and in the colonies, there was democracy on these rough and rugged mean, nasty men that we know as pirates. They, they had a form of primitive democracy where they would have a simple vote, where they would vote on their captain. They could vote their captain out. They voted on where to go. Uh, they could vote on new people who came into the pirate crew. So they had a crude form of democracy where people got to participate. And these pirates, what they were longing for was freedom, from freedom for the rigors of a society that, that they didn't fit into. Many pirate ships had cannons to attack coastal towns from the water, but the primary weapon of pirates was a short sword called a cutlass. A cannon would take nine men to operate effectively one cannon, but when they came side by side to ships and there was, there was combat, they had a sword that was short, sturdy, and curved called a cutlass, and that was their main weapon. They could cut ropes, they could hack an arm off, they could disable you, they could knock down big heavy oak doors, and that was their main weapon. The flintlock pistols, were they could get damp, they were cumbersome, they were hard to fire, they weren't that accurate. And so the Cutlass was the weapon of choice for pirates. The most notorious pirate to attack Florida was Sir Francis Drake. Since the British government endorsed Drake's raids, at least some of the time, he was also a privateer. Sir Francis Drake, uh, who was, if you were a person uh, in the uh, Spanish realm here in 1586, he was known as the worst pirate that ever lived. He was a sea dog, a sea devil, a sea dragon. But to the British, uh, he was a hero. He, he was knighted. And, but he came up the coast, and he saw a wooden watchtower out on Anastasia Island, the uh, barrier island of, off of St. Augustine, saw a Spanish wooden tower, and he ended up attacking St. Augustine in 1586, and he sacked the entire town, burned the town, burned the fort, took the pay to the fort. He cut down orange trees, uh, pulled up everybody's uh, vegetable gardens, stole everything he could. And uh, he was a notorious pirate, that he, and he preyed on the Spanish in particular. And he was considered a privateer. Robert Searle's sack of St. Augustine in 1668 is annually reenacted there. Searle used a kind of Trojan horse ruse to attack the town. Robert Searle attacked St. Augustine. He came up the coast, and he had a really ingenious plan, and he he had captured... Uh, a supply, a Spanish supply ship that was coming in from Veracruz that was to relieve, to bring supplies to St. Augustine. He captured uh, the ship and he had the crew go about their everyday duties while his crew was down below decks. So when the ship approached St. Augustine, 
they had approached the ship and they realized it was a friendly Spanish ship. Everything seemed normal. But midnight, uh, they came out, uh, the pirates, the English pirates came out and stormed the city and killed a quarter of the population of St. Augustine at that time, which was pretty amazing. Sack Zacharias says that the last pirate to attack St. Augustine was Nicolas Gremont. He was French. And he attacked St. Augustine, and he tried to starve the city to death and had a 16-day siege and blockade of the city. And unfortunately for him, he was not successful. Uh, a Spanish sloop had slipped the blockade and gone to Havana for help and reinforcements, and he figured this out. And after 16 days, he gave up. But he represents the last attack on St. Augustine, on the city of St. Augustine, by pirates. Now, there were other attacks, but they weren't by pirates. And there was siege warfare that went there uh, on on different occasions, but they weren't pirates. Just as there were people of African descent on every Spanish ship to come to Florida in the 1500s, there were black pirates who terrorized Florida's coast. Francisco Menendez was one of them. Francisco uh, Menendez was a a, a black pirate. He was Spanish, and uh, he was at uh, an interesting fort, which was north of St. Augustine, called Fort Mose, which was a buffer fort to protect the Spanish town of St. Augustine from uh, what they knew would be at some point a British attack from the colonies. And he uh, had butchered some English soldiers, and then he took to the sea for the Spanish as a privateer, a Spanish privateer, and attacked uh, English shipping. And eventually, uh, he was a freed slave in the Spanish realm in St. Augustine. And uh, he eventually was caught by the English and then sold back into slavery. And he was tortured. I think he was hit 200 times with a cat of nine tails. (laughs) But then eventually, he ended his way back up at Fort Mose. And then when the British took over Florida for 20 years, he eventually was taken with the Spanish down to Havana and lived his life out there. Pirates were active along Florida's east coast, in the Keys, and along the Gulf Coast for centuries. Zach Zacharias says his favorite Florida pirate is Henry Jennings. This is a pirate who came out of Jamaica. He was an English pirate. And in 1715, the big Spanish treasure fleet was sailing in August of 1715, right up the coast, right off of Brevard County. Uh, And they they hit a hurricane, and they... All 15 or 18 ships were scattered up and down the coast. And the Spanish set about uh, a salvage operation. Well, this pirate, Henry Jennings, attacked the uh, salvage operation and stole and looted 300,000 pieces of eight for himself. And he actually retired a very wealthy pirate off of this. Zach Zacharias is Senior Curator of Education and Curator of History at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach. He spoke with us about Florida pirates, both real and imagined. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about exciting events like our annual meeting and symposium, shop for great books on Florida history and culture, utilize our classroom resources, and much more. To receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report, just click on the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. For daily updates on Florida history, join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. 
1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. In February 1521, a decade after his first exploration of La Florida, Juan Ponce de Leon was awarded the position of Adelantado, governor of this new land. He set out from San Juan to conquer and colonize. The journal of the expedition is lost, but a contemporary court historian, Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo, describes a formidable force, 200 men and 50 horses. In addition to, quote, mares and heifers and swine and sheep and goats, they also carried seeds for planting, as well as missionaries and priests. In the spring of 1521, brigantines sailed up the southwest coast of the peninsula, anchoring off one of the islands in today Charlotte Harbor. Oviedo described the Calusa Indians as, quote, rough and savage and untamed and not accustomed to peace. After several Spaniards were killed and Ponce suffered a mortal leg wound, the would-be colonists sailed to Havana, Cuba, where their leader died in July 1521. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Firo Beach's 1891 post office application indicates that the town was almost named Zero Beach. Janie Gould speaks with Florida history and genealogy librarian Pam Cooper, who has been researching the origin of the name. Folks around Vero still aren't sure where the name of the town came from. Pam Cooper, the Florida history and genealogy librarian at the Indian River County Main Library, has been searching and researching the name Vero for at least a dozen years and she's found numerous theories. She's been able to discount a lot of them, including the most popular one, which is that the name came from the wife of pioneer settler Henry Gifford, that her name was Vera. Her name really wasn't Vera, right, Pam? Absolutely right. Her name was Sarah. She is credited for giving us the name of Vero. It's not been proven exactly. Her son published many publications that because she knew Latin and because she wanted the town to be known as a place of truth, that was a word that she felt should be chosen. Because truth in Latin is veritas? Exactly. There was a lot of situations going on at that time. One of the things that I found in the newspapers of the early 1890s was the railroad tracks that were being laid down by Flagler. There were letters to the editor. Veritas and Progress were two people. We don't know who they were, but they were living in the Vero Beach area. Their letters to the editor were signed Veritas? Exactly. Veritas wanted to know where Flagler was going to lay down the tracks. Was it going to be on the mainland or on the barrier island? And he wanted the truth. The biggest change in our history is when the railroad came through. The citrus industry was all over on the barrier island. When the train came down, they decided, well, I guess we better pick up and move over to the mainland so that we can get closer to the tracks. 
back to Vero. Another theory was that the railroad required all the train stops to have names of no more than four letters. That wasn't right. I found the actual postal regulations from that time period, and it only said that they wanted to short one word. They did not say anything about four letters. There were towns all over, Sebastian, Roseland, Toledo, Reams. None of those were four letters. So what do you think? What is your best theory about where the name Vero came from? Definitely Sarah Gifford. I feel quite confident that she did provide the word. Her husband did sign the post office application. She did know Latin. She wanted everybody to know that our town was a place of truth. Who knows what was going on in her mind at that time. We got a lot of publications. We got brochures that actually say that Vero was a place of truth. The postal application says Vero Beach, but the V looks like it replaced a Z, which would have made it Zero Beach, which legions of teenagers have called this town anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. It was really a shock to me when I pulled up the application and I saw that really heavy V that was written over the Z. It was so obvious. The postmaster must have thought that he heard the word Zero and nobody ever heard of Vero. So it's just possible that the postmaster way back then was going to name our town Zero Beach. I'm afraid so. In the teens, the town was also known as Vigorous Vero. The newspapers actually decided that this is a place that was growing really fast. We're going to call them Vigorous Vero, and that was a column in the St. Lucie County Tribune. Janie Gould spoke with Pam Cooper, Florida History and Genealogy Librarian at the Indian River County Library. This is Florida Frontiers. The Labor Day hurricane of September 2, 1935 was one of the most devastating storms to hit Florida. Bill Dudley has this report. We knew that there was a hurricane out there because my dad read the barometer like he'd read his Bible. That was every day. In a 1997 interview, Bernard Russell recalled the 1935 Florida Keys hurricane. The 16-year-old Russell was one of just 280 residents of the islands of Upper and Lower Matacumbi. But that summer, the islands were also home to nearly 700 World War I veterans housed in wooden barracks in three camps. The vets were building a highway beside the tracks of Flagler's Railroad to Key West, when shortly before Labor Day, September 2nd, forecasters in Jacksonville began tracking a storm near the Bahamas. They were predicting that the storm would travel between Key West and Havana through the Florida Straits. Suddenly, they became aware that, that it really wasn't going that direction. It was heading directly towards the center of the Keys. But by the time they realized that, it was about 430 on Labor Day afternoon, and it was too late. Tom Knowles is a retired college administrator and former naval officer who grew up in Key West. His book, Category 5, The 1935 Labor Day Hurricane, is the first comprehensive account of the storm, compiled through exhaustive research and interviews with survivors like Wilbur Jones, who, as the storm intensified, was waiting in the railway station for a rescue train from Miami. And it was really beginning to shake pretty badly, so much so that we asked the station master about the boxcars, but we'd see it on the siding. And he said one of them was empty. So we thought we would dash out and go over there, but we didn't do any dashing. As soon as we got out of that 
But the wind flipped the car on its side, trapping Jones and 12 other men inside with the water rising. They held on through the night, breathing air trapped in a bubble. Delayed by bad judgment and communication problems, the rescue train finally arrived just as the hurricane struck, with winds over 200 miles an hour. A great wave washed all the cars off the track, leaving only the locomotive. The barometer reading was 26.35 inches, the lowest ever recorded in North America. In 1997, Etta Parker remembered being one of 15 family members and friends huddled in a small cottage as an 18-foot storm surge washed over the island. All the windows and the doors and the roof and everything blew out, disappeared, and we started floating. The house did. We thought we were out. Daddy thought we were in the bay. Bernard Russell and his family found temporary refuge in a building in the center of the island. They were in a big packing house that they thought would be very sturdy, but it started to come apart. So they, they started to go out the door, and this was during the height of the storm. So my dad told everybody, he said, when we go out, hang on, don't turn loose. But my sister had a little son that was about three years old, so we put him between the two and we went out of the door. The wind tore Russell's sister and her child from his grasp. He never saw either of them again. Fleeing their collapsing house, Elizabeth Williams Chance and her sister Evelyn spent the night with their family in a car wedged between two palm trees. By daylight, nine-year-old Elizabeth was able to crawl out of the car, now buried in debris, to witness the devastation of their island home. I got out and I looked around and it was such total isolation. It was like being on another planet. There was no life. There was nothing alive. Everything was just white, just the white sand. The cottage in which Etta Parker and her family had been clinging to an iron bed frame came to rest a mile from its original spot. Daddy and one of my brothers went out and started looking, see if they could find some place that might be dry. Well, there was no such thing on the island. It was no green on the island. Everything. You could look for miles and there wasn't a house, there wasn't a tree, there wasn't anything. Most of their neighbors were dead, trapped and drowned by rising water, hit by flying debris, or buried in wreckage. Clutching her two-month-old baby, Ruth Knowles Booth survived being swept out of her home and blown nearly 20 miles over open water to the mainland, where both apparently died of exposure on the beach. An estimated 178 civilians and 260 veterans died in the storm, which soon made headlines across the country. University of South Florida historian Gary Mormino. For the first time, a hurricane becomes a national issue, not a local or regional issue. Ernest Hemingway writes in the New Masses magazine, Who Killed the Vets? A searing indictment of national policy. The 1935 storm went from a Category 1 to a Category 5 in only 36 hours. Today, over 80,000 people are in harm's way during hurricane season in the Florida Keys. Tom Knowles hopes we won't forget the lessons of 1935. This research I did made me realize how very important it is to listen to the emergency management people Even if the storm is currently a Category 1 and they say, let's evacuate this area, they need to get out because they can become trapped there very quickly. Aunts and uncles, cousins, mothers and fathers and all, and the Russell family was 61. 
the next morning after the hurricane, we had 11 left. Category 5, the 1935 Labor Day Hurricane, is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.